Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Karma Sense Foodcast. I'm Davey H. And this episode is brought to you by the letter O. O is for Oh Boy. It's time for another action-packed episode of everyone's favorite foodcast, the Karma Sense Foodcast. In this solo episode, we examine the most up-to-date information on some late-breaking non-news that's harshing the mellow of the wellness community. Then we do another deep dive into the world of herbs and spices. Finally, we have another installment of what in the actual fudge is dot dot dot, in which we look at a popular supplement that sounds like something you'd find on the periodic table of elements and that everyone is clueless about. Let's go! O is for oil. And in this segment, we look at coconut oil. Coconut oil, which we extract from the fruit, nut, seed, or droop. Yeah, a coconut's all four. Lately, coconut oil's received a lot of bad press. You may have seen the headline saying, Coconut oil isn't healthy. It's never been healthy. What new discovery caused the news media to suddenly change course again on the humble coconut? That's what we aim to explore in this segment. So... Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of advice gone bad That started with the best intent but turned into a fad I don't know what's worse, listening to me sing, listening to me sing with roller rink music in the background Or the Gilligan's Island earworm you're going to have for the rest of the day But as you've grown accustomed, I will somehow tie our castaways to this discussion It's easy to do The group of seven survived three seasons. That's 98 episodes, primarily on coconuts. Sure, there was that one episode. You know, when Gilligan finds a box of vegetable seeds when fishing, which the castaways used to have the occasional salad, only to find out the seeds were part of a radioactive experiment that magnified the benefits that each vegetable offers. Of course, hijinks ensue, including Marianne being able to see for miles after eating carrots, Gilligan being able to lift heavy objects in one hand after eating spinach, and Mrs. Howell actually having the energy to do something useful for a change after eating beets. But that was the exception. Coconuts were the staple, and maybe the castaways are a good representation of whether coconut oil is healthy or not. Let's go back in time a little, even before 1964 to 1954, because that was pretty much the last year of all time that coconut oil and more specifically fat, was neither good nor bad, but neutral. In 1955, an American physiologist named Ansel Keys presented his findings to the World Health Organization, motto, we're the other who, of a dietary study of seven countries that linked high-fat diets to heart disease. Over time, Keys refined his findings and specifically identified saturated fat as the issue. Saturated fat's the one that stays solid at room temperature and that comes from mostly animal products in many tropical plants, including coconuts, as the main culprit. The American Heart Association went all in on Key's theory, and Fat's 60-year reign of terror began. To this day, the powerful American Heart Association has had a bug up its ass about dietary fat, and before you accuse them of being hypocrites, just know, bugs are very low in saturated fat. At the same time Keyes was making a name for himself, other people who knew a thing or two about nutrition claimed Keyes had it all wrong. 
That isn't the culprit. Sugar is. These softer voices were able to point out flaws in Key's study, as well as other studies that prove fat isn't the problem. And in all the time since then, research backs Keys and research refutes Keys. Reflecting back on the headline, coconut oil isn't healthy, it's never been healthy, it is inaccurate in a lot of ways. And we'll talk about that. But it implies something that's absolutely correct, and that is today, we really have very little knowledge about the role of saturated fat in the diet than we did back in 1954 when people were watching Lucy Ricardo eat vitamin to vegemin instead of Gilligan eating coconuts. Going back to Keys, over time, we learned, and I'm saying learned using air quotes, we learned that saturated fat raises cholesterol, which causes cardiovascular disease. Then we learned that there's good and bad cholesterol and saturated fat raises the bad stuff, the so-called LDL. But in 2004, Dr. Marie-Pierre saint Anya, I think I'm pronouncing that right, a professor of nutrition at Columbia University, go Lions, published two papers showing that eating and cooking with medium-chain fatty acids, a type of molecule found in abundance in coconut oil, helps dieting adults burn fat. Study participants ate specifically prepared meals, rich in medium-chain fatty acids, for four weeks. MRI and metabolic data showed that medium-chain fatty acids reduced their overall fat levels and helped dieters burn energy. And thus, a counter-movement was born. Swept up in a wave of paleo-dieting zealots who used this along with other data to say saturated fat is good. Meanwhile, dairy is bad. So, if you have a hankering for some paleo-compliant buffalo candy apple chicken wings, you better be using lard, tallow, or coconut oil. Butter is out. Dr. Sadanya notes that her research is misused. Only 14% of the so-called coconut oil is comprised of the medium-chain triglycerides she used. Her experiments were with pure medium-chain triglycerides. She says, and I quote, I think the data were shown with medium-chain fatty acids have been extrapolated very liberally. I've never done one study on coconut oil. Unquote. Extrapolation. Another thing liberals get wrong. What is the extent of this extrapolation? For that, I go to one of the Healthy Lifestyle Militia's chief warriors, Dr. Josh Axe, a man so handsome and youthful, he must know what he's talking about. According to Dr. Axe, Coconut oil has amazing curative properties. It treats Alzheimer's, prevents heart disease and high blood pressure, cures urinary tract kidney infection and some liver disease, reduces inflammation and arthritis, prevents and even treats cancer, boosts immunity, improves memory and brain function, makes you stronger and more virile, hubba hubba, improves digestion, including treating ulcers and colitis, reduces gallbladder disease and pancreatitis symptoms, improves skin and hair, is good for oral health, improves diabetes type 2, helps you lose weight, builds muscle while burning fat, fights aging, brings better balance to your hormones, and of course works great when you're trying to get around England during the dark ages. It is I, Arthur, son of Uther Pendragon from the castle of Camelot, king of the Britons, defeater of the Saxons, sovereign of all England. 
We have ridden the length and breadth of the land in search of knights who will join me in my court at Camelot. What? Ridden on a horse? Yes. You're using coconuts. What? You've got two empty halves of coconut and you're banging them together. So? So, coconut and its oil is really versatile. How could you not be eating coconut oil by the spoonful with all those benefits? And apparently, the world agrees. As coconut oil consumption, just the oil is up 50% since Dr. St. Anier's research. Other coconut-related products, including milk, water, and um, coconuts, are also up. And that brings us to the headline. On June 15, 2017, the American Heart Association threw a turd in the pina colada punch bowl when they issued a report called Dietary Fat and Cardiovascular Disease, a presidential advisory from the American Heart Association. The 25-page report is chock-full of information, even less interesting than its title. So the news media pumped the American Heart Association for something juicy, and the response was a pointer to one really long paragraph about coconut oil. I'm going to paraphrase some of the key points here. Point one, there's a disconnect between what nutritionists know and people believe. Point two, coconut oil consists of the three kinds of fatty acids known as short chain, medium chain, and creatively enough, long chain fatty acids. Point three, the medium and long chain fatty acids raise cholesterol by raising both LDL and HDL cholesterol. But the specific composition of coconut oil causes an overall improvement of the LDL to HDL ratio. And that ratio is one of the things doctors track when analyzing your blood lipids. But recent research indicates that elevated HDL, the so-called good cholesterol, is not as good a predictor of heart health as once thought. And therefore, we really need to look at coconut oil's effect on just the bad cholesterol, LDL. Point four, the American Heart Association is able to pick a bunch of studies that say coconut oil and not medium-chain fatty acids in isolation is worse for one's LDL levels than polyunsaturated or monounsaturated fats, the so-called good fats. And coconut oil is not significantly better than other saturated fats such as butter. Point five, therefore... The American Heart Association says coconut oil is crap. Avoid it. But wait, what about Dr. Axe and his list of amazing benefits? Someone's got to be wrong. Which one is it? Well, if our political climate has taught us anything, it's possible for two sides to be lying and telling the truth at the same time. They do this by employing a tactic that our court system explicitly tries to prevent when they compel you to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But rather than take you through a blow-by-blow description about what's wrong with each side's arguments, something you know I'm happy to do if you prod me a little. Eh? Eh? No takers? Okay. Then at a high level, the American Heart Association, or AHA's argument, falls apart, because after all these years, We still have no freaking clue about how cholesterol, even what they call bad cholesterol, relates to heart disease. It took the Dietary Guidelines for Americans 30 years to finally admit that dietary cholesterol, the type of cholesterol contributed by foods like eggs, 
have little to no impact on blood cholesterol. The HA was right when it says what we once called good cholesterol, but probably in the future will call meh cholesterol, is not a good predictor of heart health. It's true, low HDL is a good predictor of poor heart health, but when HDL is raised with pharmaceuticals, there's no correlation to better health. The HA is wrong, however, about LDL as an indicator of heart disease, at least as it stands alone. First of all, within the family of LDL, there are four different members, basically different sizes from small and dense to light and fluffy. And small and dense seems to do more damage than light and fluffy. Second of all, that LDL value you get from a doctor is a measure of mass. However, it is known that the number of total cholesterol particles in your blood is a greater predictor of heart disease than either the size or the mass. And at this point, the relationship between coconut oil and either cholesterol particle size or number? That is not known, Khaleesi. The American Heart Association is still living in 1954 when married couples on TV couldn't sleep in the same bed. But Dr. Axe and his ilk play hard and fast with the facts, too. There's decent evidence to support many of the claims they make, but like Dr. St. Onya's experiments show, much of that evidence is with medium-chain triglycerides, or fatty acids. I use those terms interchangeably. In many cases, you'd have to down a lot of coconut oil to reach the same amounts of medium-chain triglycerides in the experiments. Also, many of the experiments use mice as subjects, and while mice have a lot of similarities with humans, there are also major differences that make a difference in nutrition research. For example, mice are able to manufacture their own vitamin C, whereas we can only get it through food. In summary, the science behind all the benefits you hear about coconut oil is interesting, but it's inconclusive. And this pretty much puts it on the same footing as the science behind blood cholesterol and its link to heart disease. As I said from the start, despite headlines, nothing has changed. Like Gilligan's Island, it's all just reruns of information we had available decades ago, which leaves us with the proposition of what do we do now? And my response harkens back all the way back to three points we discussed in episode one of the Foodcast. Foodcast, words to live by. The first point is, you are not in. For the most part, none of the research both sides cite applies directly to you, because you weren't subjects in the experiment. The second point is that your health is formulated by six factors. Your genes, physiology, activity level, nutrition, physical surroundings, and your mindset. And no one in those experiments has the same composition of those factors that you do. You don't have the same composition of those factors you did when you first started listening to this podcast. Finally, eat good fats daily and balance a variety of good fats. That means eat a relatively equal mix of saturated, polyunsaturated, and monounsaturated fats every day. And since among all of those, it's easiest for people in the developing world to get their fill of saturated fats, especially if you're a meat eater, don't add coconut oil to your diet with the expectation of it making you healthier, smarter, and prettier without removing other saturated fats from your diet first. Finally, the less processed the source of your coconut oil, the better, meaning your best source is to eat whole coconuts followed by unprocessed coconut milk, 
Unprocessed coconut milk typically comes in cans, sometimes in a carton. But if it has any ingredient other than coconut, it's processed and skip it. Next comes virgin coconut oil. After that, and probably best avoided, comes refined coconut oil. And last comes just about any chip, cracker, cookie, or other packaged foods that touts coconut oil as an ingredient. Two side notes. The first has to do with cooking with coconut oil. When you cook with virgin coconut oil, you have to settle for a lower cooking temperature than with the refined version I just told you to avoid. Virgin coconut oil starts to smoke and basically turns to poison when it reaches a temperature of 350 degrees Fahrenheit or 175 degrees Celsius. Refined coconut oil starts out more like poison, but doesn't go full ick until 400 degrees Fahrenheit or 205 degrees Celsius. Also, virgin coconut oil has a coconutty flavor, so don't use it with anything that may not agree with that. Cookies in some Asian dishes? Sure. Eggs? Maybe not. Refined coconut oil doesn't tend to have this problem. Note number two. You can buy 100% medium-chain triglyceride oil. It's a better representation of what scientists like Dr. Senonia used in her experiments. It's also what they use in that ridiculous bulletproof coffee that's supposed to help you lose weight and be more focused, when in fact it helps you lose money and be more gullible. MCT oil, as it's also known, costs about twice as much as coconut oil, which isn't cheap either. When you consider high-quality butter and olive oil are about 40-60% to 60% cheaper than the coconut oil. Look, all you have to do is observe the castaways of Gilligan's Island to know there's no one-size-fits-all solution that says coconut oil is healthy or unhealthy. Sure, most of the castaways are pretty fit, but then there's the skipper. And the professor's pretty smart, but then there's Gilligan. And Ginger? She's smoking hot, but Marianne's better, and she spent most of her life eating corn. O is for oregano. It's time for another installment of the Herb and Spice series, and this time we look at the herb oregano. If you listen to installment one about mint, you know that oregano is an herb because it's derived from the leaf of a plant. If it was made from the seed, stem, flower, root, etc., it would be a spice. Oregano is actually in the mint family and is closely related to another herb, marjoram. In fact, some people call oregano wild marjoram, although rumors that it's called wild because it listens to rock and roll and entices the kids in town to dance, even though it's illegal within city limits, are untrue. The real reason is that marjoram is pretty persnickety about where it grows. Oregano, however, is one of those low-maintenance weed-like plants that even I can grow. Four years ago, I planted one small plant that was about ankle high, and right now that plant is waist high and fills an area in my herb garden that's about as big as a Labrador Retriever. Unlike a Labrador Retriever, oregano has a very pleasant smell. Also, it may be smarter, but that's a different story. So yeah, you can easily grow your own oregano, just like mint. But unlike mint, most good cooks agree that dried oregano is superior for cooking as compared to fresh. I also agree. It is lovely to grow your own herbs, and as I said, oregano is a low-maintenance version. But the effort required to pick off the leaves, clean them, and dry them may make buying the McCormick jar at your local foodway more convenient. 
And because I love oregano and use it by the bucket load, I get mine in one of those industrial-sized Costco containers. Oregano is really versatile. It plays nicely in Greek, Italian, Middle Eastern, North African, and Latin cuisines. As far as nutrition goes, one tablespoon or one gram of oregano has three calories and negligible amounts of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. But oregano contains more fiber by weight than many other high-fiber foods. It contains 10 times more fiber by weight than most beans, a commonly recognized fiber superstar. Maybe instead of singing the praises of beans, we should be singing about oregano. Oregano, oregano, the musical herb. The more you eat, the more you disturb. Heh, kind of has a ring to it. Hello, U.S. Patent and Trade Office. I'd like to register a copyright. Now, as we'll find out with the rest of the nutrition facts for oregano, while it has plenty of nutrition by weight, you don't tend to consume enough in a day to make a huge impact. But I'll make the case that the fiber content of oregano is indeed significant to your health. Experts, including the now shamelessly discredited by me American Heart Association, really, I'm sure they'll never show their faces in public again after the punishment I put them through in the last segment. Those experts recommend that we get 20 to 38 grams of fiber a day. One tablespoon of oregano has 0.4 grams of fiber. It's only going to get you 1 or 2% closer to that goal. But the typical American diet only gets about 14 grams in a day. Now all of a sudden, you've pushed the needle closer to the goal by about 5%. Not enough, but it's progress. Maybe try some of my suggestions at the end for cooking with oregano to bump up your fiber, and you are well on your way to a Merry Christmas. Oregano is no slouch in the micronutrients department either. Don't sell yourself short, Judge. You're a tremendous slouch. That one gram or tablespoon contains almost 10% of your daily requirements for vitamin K, a crucial vitamin if you're a bleeder like I am because K is critical for blood clotting. It also is one of those catalysts for calcium absorption and plays other roles in strengthening your bones and teeth. Oregano also supplements your iron and calcium needs a bit, but I wouldn't count on it as being a significant source. Then we get to the final category, nutrition content. All those phyto thingies and antioxidants the kids are raging about today. Remember, oregano is part of the mint family and like mint is high in a substance called rosmarinic acid. Studies show rosmarinic acid is effective at reducing inflammation and other symptoms associated with seasonal allergies. Oregano also contains antibacterial and anti-inflammatory substances with the wild names of carvacol, thymol, and beta-carophyllin. Wander too far into the depths of the Google machine and you're likely to find snake oil sales folks who convince you that these substances, and therefore oregano, can cure everything from dandruff and acne to the big C, menstrual cramps. Also the other big C, cancer. And I realize I'll probably get in trouble for that joke, so please send all your complaints to Karma Sense Wellness, care of Dr. Oz at 5225 Quackenbush Lane, Hollywood, California. But as we all know by now, research that proves beneficial effects of these types of substances don't equate to foods containing those substances having the same effect. First of all, 
Most experiments use levels of these chemicals in amounts you'd rarely get from consuming the food that contains them. Second of all, they're usually done with pure extracts of the chemicals fed to animals and not people. Scientists perform experiments this way because drug and supplement companies are looking for ways to patent and add profit margins to their products. You can't patent oregano. You can patent custom forms of your beta-carophyllin. And that happens all the time. I patented twice since we've been here. Are you kidding me? Why not? And thus ends the KarmaSense Foodcast brief homage to the 40-year-old virgin. Anyway, the good news is that Whole Foods always seem to do a better job at supporting good health than patent number WO20131403428A1, which is the patent for treating schizophrenia using beta-carophyllin. That's not a joke. That's a patent held by Ariel University, whose fight song is obviously... And after a frenetic rant that takes you through a poem about passing gas, references to Footloose, South Park, Caddyshack, and 40-year-old version, disses of Dr. Oz, the American Heart Association, and Labrador Retrievers, a truly tasteless joke I can't take back, and a reminder of what was easily the worst song of the year 1978. You may think I'm the target market for a patent that addresses schizophrenia, but presumably I can get my dose of beta-carophyllin with a different version of that snake oil, and that comes from a product called oregano oil. Purveyors of oregano oil market its ability to concentrate all of the benefits one can get from oregano without having to eat it by the shovel load. But other than as a useful addition to steam therapy to fight off sinus infections, no credible studies exist to support the purported benefits of oregano oil. It seems to be just another waste of money. The main reason to eat oregano is it's delicious. It makes already amazing foods more amazing. It makes food you want to eat, but feel like you have to choke it down, easier to enjoy. And it has a few small upsides health-wise with no real downside, unless you just hate it. Oregano is made for summer. Mix about a thumbnail size amount of Dijon mustard, honey, and oregano with a pinch of garlic. Splash in about a third of a shot glass of red wine vinegar and mix it up. Then slowly pour in and stir two shot glasses worth of olive oil. Add salt and pepper to taste and you have an easy and delicious salad dressing or marinade that's cheap and healthy. Oregano and tomatoes are meant for each other. Slice some fresh tomatoes real thick and put them on a sheet pan. Top them with a little salt and a generous sprinkle of oregano. Brush it with olive oil and put them in the oven at 300 degrees Fahrenheit or 150 degrees Celsius. Cook it for about 50 minutes. Sprinkle some Parmesan on top at the end, if you please. Your house will smell great, and you'll end up with a low-calorie, nutritious snack or side dish that's surprisingly rich and satisfying. You can actually use a number of herbs in that one, and even fresh versions will do. For example, Instead of using dry oregano, you can use fresh sprigs of oregano, thyme, or rosemary. These are easier to deal with than most recipes that ask for fresh herbs because all you have to do is wash and dry the sprigs and lay them on top before applying the oil. That's much easier than having to pick and chop the leaves. 
Just be sure to remove the sprigs before you eat the tomatoes. The flavor will transfer to the tomatoes, but the sprigs themselves aren't edible. If you don't want the sprigs to go to waste, you can jar them airtight in a little olive oil and in a few days you have herb-infused olive oil. As far as other ideas, oregano pairs with meat, especially lamb, chicken, and lighter fish. It's surprisingly good mixed into burger patties and its antioxidants help restrain some of the nasty chemicals that accumulate in grilled meat as we talked about in episode 33 of the Foodcast. Finally, it's a great addition to hearty soups and bean dishes. If you find yourself with some insipid concoction of that sort, try adding some oregano before you resort to salt. And at this point, I think I've done enough damage, at least as it applies to oregano, for one segment. O is for CoQ10, which is cheating, I know, but enough Karma Sense fans have asked me about CoQ10 that it's worthy of focus in a what in the actual fudge is CoQ10 segment. CoQ10 goes by many names, including ubiquinone, ubiquinol, and the lyrically superb trans-2,3-dimethoxy-5-methyl-6-decapronel-1. We better stick with CoQ10. CoQ10's claim to fame in the annals of wellness consumerism is that, like Elvis, it's everywhere. Elvis is everywhere. Elvis is everything. Elvis is everybody. You may have noticed that the name ubiquinone and ubiquinol are suspiciously similar to the term ubiquitous, and CoQ10 earned this name because it's in every cell of your body. It's specifically concentrated in organ cells, especially the heart. The CO in CoQ10 is short for coenzyme. A coenzyme works with other enzymes in your body to make stuff happen. The stuff that CoQ10 makes happen is generation of ATP, the fuel that allows your cells to do its work. Without ATP, your cells stop working. If CoQ10 is low, your cells suck at working. CoQ10 is a so-called pseudovitamin. These are compounds that you need to live, but to the best of our knowledge, deficiencies don't cause any known disease states. Your body makes its own CoQ10. Put all that ballyhoo together and it means you need CoQ10, but you don't really need to supplement it. Note, I put an emphasis on the word need. Many people claim that when you do supplement with CoQ10, it helps in a bunch of ways. It has general positive cardiovascular benefits, it boosts immunity, and has specific applications in reducing symptoms of fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, depression, migraines, and Parkinson's disease. Also, people claim it increases energy and improves performance, both athletic and sexual. Hubba hubba. What does the research say? CoQ10 happens to have an extensive body of research supporting it, and many of its claims are true, although the effects seem to be weak. CoQ10 seems to make the most sense for people who have had heart attacks or other damage to cardiac tissue. Also, people on statins seem to benefit from supplements because both heart attacks and statins decrease internal CoQ10 levels. CoQ10's most powerful effect is that it likely reduces the damage to blood vessels caused by those mean old small and dense LDL particles. It also reduces plaque buildup in the arteries. There's one very encouraging study that demonstrates CoQ10's ability to lessen the pain and other symptoms associated with fibromyalgia. 
One study does not constitute strong evidence in my book. But my book has lots of pictures of men and women in colorful costumes fighting each other in the name of Truth, Justice, and the next major movie franchise. So I wouldn't go by that, but the fibromyalgia effect needs more study. Many of the other claims also have scientific support, but CoQ10's effect on things like fertility and blood pressure is pretty small in the scheme of things. And in many cases, such as with fatigue and migraines, it may just be a placebo. I'm a huge fan of the placebo effect, but CoQ10 is usually a pricey way to pay for something that could be resolved by convincing yourself that you'll get the same effect by taking a Flintstone vitamin. So, as I said, you don't need to supplement, but you may want to. There might be some upsides, and the biggest downside is to your wallet. If you do want to boost your CoQ10 levels through outside means, food's always your best option. We humans are not the only creatures with ubiquitous CoQ10 factories in our cells' mitochondria. Just about any animal product is a good source. The most concentrated sources are pig hearts, chicken hearts, chicken liver, something I still maintain would make an excellent schlumpia filling, beef hearts, and reindeer meat. Rudolph better hope that Santa's heart stays strong, because I've heard the CoQ10 prices at the North Pole CVS are through the roof. Kind of in the middle of the road in CoQ10 content are sardines, herring, and mackerel. Once again, with their hearts being the best source. But really, how many sardine hearts would you have to eat? CoQ10 is also found in trace amounts in dairy, eggs, grain, nuts, seeds, and vegetables. But probably not enough to interest you. If you choose to supplement, standard doses range between 90 and 200 milligrams which is about how much you get by eating six and a half pounds or three kilograms of sardine hearts. That excellent site, labdoor.com, has some good recommendations if you want to make sure you have a reliable source. If you're vegetarian or vegan, make sure your supplements are compliant with your lifestyle. CoQ10 can be extracted from plants or synthesized, and many supplements are, but for all I know, some may be extracted from sardine hearts. Take CoQ10 with a meal. And make sure your meal includes some healthy fats. Not only because that's Karma Sense mantra number five and a decent way for me to link back to the coconut oil segment, but because CoQ10 in the diet gets absorbed using the same pathway as fat. But your digestive system doesn't recognize CoQ10, so if there's no fat in the mix, your CoQ10 is yet another expensive ingredient flushed down your toilet. And that, my friends, is what in the actual fudge is CoQ10. O is for, it's over. We've managed to fill another 40 minutes or so of your otherwise dreary day with this otherwise dreary podcast. But I really hope it was useful to you and that you enjoyed it. If you did, there's always that leaving a review thing on Apple Podcasts you can do with some quid pro quo. You could also share this podcast with your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, let me know why. You can still leave a review And you can share this with anyone you're looking to punk. Hey, I'm ready to be the Rick Roll of podcasts. I'm dropping this episode on National Ceviche Day, also known as June 28, 2017. So this will likely be the last episode before July 4th, International Jackfruit Day, and National Caesar Salad Day, National Spare Rib Day, and National Barbecue Day. It's also America's Independence Day. And so... 
Let's close this episode with a little patriotism brought to you by yet another O, Baltimore Oriole fans. Until next time, kiddies, remember what your old pals, the O's fans, always say. Oh, say that, oh, say that.